Father, I'm so grateful this morning to gather with the church. Lord, it's such a joy to be able to do this every single week, to come together and, Lord, sing praises to you, to be reminded of who you are and why you are worthy of our worship, uh, to open up your word and learn about you and learn about how you designed us to live and how you created the world and everything, Lord, you want us to know about yourself. And so, Lord, I pray this morning as we read in Philippians and, and all sorts of other texts this morning that, Father, you would, by your spirit, just soften our hearts to the truth that you wanna communicate to us this morning. Lord, we're talking about a topic this morning that your word tells us touches our heart in a way that not many other things does. And so, Lord, we pray that we'd be open and receptive uh, to what your word has to say. I pray that you would help us to grasp the vastness of your generosity toward us in Christ. And that in turn, Lord, that would cause us to be a radically generous people. We love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, if you were tracking the news this week, uh, and if you live in Northern Virginia, we got the big news, which was what? Amazon, HQ2 is coming into town. I'm not sure if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but promising up to 38,000 jobs, uh, that's a lot of jobs. Um, home values are projected to go up. I'm sure we're going to have all kinds of infrastructure projects to I don't know, handle all the influx of people. Who knows what they're gonna do about Metro. Uh, but you know, even without Amazon coming to this area, we already live in the wealthiest region in all of America, if you calculate it by median household income. Six of the top 10 richest counties in America are here in the DC area. Loudoun is number one. Fairfax County is in the top five. And so just think about this. We live in the richest area of the richest country in all of world history. And with Amazon promising to pay, I read this, I, I, I don't know if this is exactly true, but promising to pay an average of 150K a year, that's only gonna increase. Right? The kind of wealth and affluence that influences the culture around us, especially here in the DC area, is unprecedented and it's historic. And throughout the year, we've been in this sermon series called This Cultural Moment, where we just pause every once in a while and we grab a topic that our culture is talking about and we address it. And the reason we've been doing that is because if there is a topic that our culture is talking about and this particular topic is addressed by God's word, then we want to talk about it. And no doubt the topic of money is massive in the culture and the topic of money is also massive in the word of God. God's word talks about money and possessions over 2,000 times. And so what that means is we're gonna talk about money today. And I realize that money is a bit of an awkward topic in church. If this is your first time at Grace Hill Church, I'm sure you're thinking, oh great, I, you know, show up to this church for the first time and they're talking about money, right? Typical church, rest assured, 
This is our first time preaching on this topic since we planted. We've only planted this church uh, just over a year. We're a brand new church here in Herndon. But why is this topic of money uh, an awkward topic to address? And I think the reason is because the Bible tells us that money touches the heart unlike most things. Matthew 6.21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? If you want to know the condition of one's heart or to discover what they're actually about or what they really believe, looking at how they handle their money is a good indicator. And whenever someone talks to us about money, we're immediately skeptical of their motive because everyone's trying to make an extra buck or line their pockets. Right? Money is so powerful, it's so intoxicating that it seems like it can corrupt anyone. And we've all seen it. And the Bible talks about this power that money can have over us. Uh, Jesus said, Terry just read this for us in Matthew 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here's what Jesus is saying. You can only have one God. So if money is your God, if money is what you're willing to make sacrifices for, if money is what your heart truly longs for and dreams about, then everything else in your life will exist to serve this God of money. This is what your career will only be about, is money. Or you'll get bitter at relationships that impede your financial goals or desires. You'll get frustrated when people ask you for money. Your faith itself will become subservient to your financial desires. But the flip side is true as well. If God is your true God, the one whom you wanna serve with your life, the one whom you wanna center everything on, then everything in your life will come underneath that life purpose of living for God. Your money would just be a way, a tool to serve God. And your true God will influence how you spend, save, manage, give your money. So you can only have one God. If, God, if your God is money, your faith will take a back seat to what you're truly about. But if your God is God, then your money will exist to serve God. And the Bible warns us about what will happen if we make money our God. Very clearly, uh, this is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Look at what Paul says. He says, but those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We could talk for a long time about the truth of this passage and how the love of money will bring ruin and destruction to your life, but that's not what my sermon is about today. Rather, my sermon today is about the joy that's available to us when we put money in its proper place in our lives. 
Notice how this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6 did not say that money was the root of all evil. Didn't say that. Rather, it said the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And the Bible tells us that when we love God more than we love money, there is abundant joy to be had. And to give you a picture of this, I want to study uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 20 with you this morning. Uh, Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. And in this specific section that we're going to be looking at in chapter 4, what Paul is doing is he's thanking the Philippians for their generous financial support of his ministry. So let's look at what Paul says. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again, you, the Philippian church, you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in this passage, we get two examples of people who put money in the right place in their lives. Uh, the first example is obviously Paul. If you look at verses 11 to 13 in our passage, Paul has learned to be content whether he has a lot of money or whether he has no money at all. If he has a lot of money, he can use that money for the, his ministry and, and God's purposes in his life. If he has no money, he can still do the ministry that God has called him to. He's put money in its place. It's not that Paul is against having money, even a lot of money. He just sees money as a tool that God entrusts to him for the purpose of investing into ministry. And the Philippians are the other example of putting money in its place. Uh, because the Philippians went out of their way to financially support Paul, uh, even when Paul was not with them, they put forth effort to take a collection from the people of the church and get that delivered to Paul to invest in his ministry. And they delivered that through Epaphroditus. So to the Philippians, money was a tool that God entrusted them with 
in order to supply God's ministry. I'm sorry, Paul's ministry. And because the Philippians did not love money, they were able to generously and completely supply Paul and his ministry. And Paul tells the Philippians, because of this, because of your generosity and your faithful stewardship of your money, two results are gonna be coming to you from doing that. The first we see, the first result of this is in verse 17. Look at that again. Where Paul says this, not that I seek the gift, not that I'm seeking money from you, but I seek the profit. So the literal Greek word there is actually fruit. I seek the fruit, the profit, that is increasing to your account. So Paul's using financial terminology here and talking as if the Philippians are taking their money investing it into God's kingdom, and as a result, they're gonna get a return. There's gonna be a profit, or there's gonna be fruit that's gonna come back to them, credited to their account. The question is, what is the fruit, and what does it mean that it will be credited to the Philippians? Well, Galatians chapter five, verse 22, tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, goodness, and self-control. So one result of the Philippians putting their money in its rightful place, a result of their generosity, is the production of fruit in their life, and, and one of those fruits primarily being joy in their life. The second result that comes from their generosity is God's promise that he will supply their need. Uh, Verse 19, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So both Paul and the Philippians demonstrate this, that they can be radically generous with their money and view money not as a security, but as something to be invested for God's purposes. They can do that because they trust that God's gonna provide for their needs. And so the Bible presents radically different lifestyles and outcomes in regard to the kind of power and control money has over our lives. And I really believe that one of the biggest hindrances to our joy in the church in this area, in Northern Virginia, the DC area, because we live in such an affluent culture, and there's so much wealth around us, I think what we've done is we've allowed money to be one of those topics that we just don't address. We just don't talk about it. I don't want other people speaking into my financial business. I don't have, I'm not gonna speak into anybody else's. It's kind of become off limits. And when it goes off limits, we don't put it in its right place. We try to serve both God and money, but you can't do that. So how do we put money in its right place in our lives? How do we do that? I have two ways for us that I wanna talk about for our time this morning, two ways that we put money in its place for our lives. So here's the first one. Number one, we need to understand that God does not want generosity from you God wants generosity for you. Let that sink in. 
God does not want generosity from you. He wants it for you. Right? This is a mindset shift that's, that's gotta take place in our lives. God does not need our money to carry out his purposes or fulfill his promises. He has no need of it. God has promised that he is going to build the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and that's going to happen whether or not we drop a check in the give box. The gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be preached to every single people group in every nation across this whole globe. God has promised that's gonna happen and it will happen whether we fund it or not. And we know this is going to happen because God said it was going to happen and he does not need our resources to make it happen. Uh, In Psalm chapter 50, something I wanna read for us, um, God is rebuking his people in Psalm 50 because they were starting to get an attitude. Let me tell you about this attitude they were getting. Uh, They began to think that their animal sacrifices that they would do to God to to worship him um, was something that God needed from them. And so when you have something that someone else needs, what do you have in that relationship? You have leverage. And so here was their attitude. They were thinking, well, God needs our sacrifices. And so what we can do is we can use these as leverage to try to get God to do things for us. And I think this is something we've all done before. Uh, you know, we tell God, hey, I'm gonna pray a little more or give a little bit more to the church or, uh, you know, I'll clean up my language or whatever it is. And maybe God will, will hear me better or, or listen to my prayers or answer my prayers if I'm a little more disciplined in my life, or if I serve him better. So it's kind of this idea that God needs us to do this. And so God responds to his people in Psalm 50, verses nine to 12. Look at what he says. He says, I will not take a bull from your household or male goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills I know every bird of the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. Here's what God is saying. I don't need your bulls and goats. I don't need your sacrifices. You don't have any leverage on me because I own everything. I have a cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your resources. I don't need your possessions. I don't need your self-focused religious works. God doesn't need your money or your stuff or your spiritual disciplines. You know what? God wants you. He wants your worship. He wants your heart. He wants to be your God, not money. And God is going to accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises with or without our generosity. He owns everything. Every dime on this planet belongs to God. He has unlimited resources and is not in need of our money. So here's the thing. God does not need generosity from you. He wants it for you. Because money is a terrible God that will destroy your life. 
And when you begin to generously see your money as a tool to be used for God's purposes, you strip money of its God status in your life. You put money in its place and you begin to make deposits that will produce profits and fruits of joy in your life. Listen, we have a generous God who is inviting us into a life of generosity. Jesus Christ himself demonstrates that it is generosity that leads to joy, not stinginess. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter eight, when Paul is talking about how we have been called to generosity with our money, he points to Jesus in 2 Corinthians eight. I want you to look at 2 Corinthians chapter eight, verse nine. Look at what Paul says. In this chapter, he's talking about giving as a, as a spiritual discipline to the church. And here's what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, Jesus, he was in heaven in glory with God the Father. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. He came down, he took on human flesh. He was in a small, no-name town working as a peasant. For your sake he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. You know what else Jesus did when he came here? Is Jesus lives a life without sin. And so as Jesus is living his life without sin, he is accruing for himself a wealth of righteousness. But the scriptures tell us that we cannot live a life like that because we have sinned against God. And so as we live our lives, we don't accrue for ourselves a wealth of righteousness. We actually incur upon ourselves debt a debt of sin that we owe to God. And so here's what Jesus did for us on the cross. When he goes to the cross and he dies, he takes the penalty for our sin. And so what he does at that moment is he pays off our debt of sin. We don't owe God anymore, but he does more than that. He takes his wealth of righteousness and he credits it to our account. And so he fills our accounts up with righteousness. So we stand before God as those who are righteous and forgiven, children of God, not those who are in debt and under his judgment. This is the very definition of generosity. I have something that you need. I'm going to freely sacrifice it out of love for you so that you can have it. And that's what Christ has done for us. But Jesus knew that built into his generosity was joy. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, one of my favorite passages, for the joy that was set before Jesus. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We serve a generous God, and he lovingly is leading us toward a life of joyful generosity. And here's the second way that we put money in its place is we need to excel, excel in sacrificial giving. Excel in sacrificial giving. This is a command straight out of 2 Corinthians chapter eight where Paul is talking about this discipline of giving to the local church. And this is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians eight verse seven now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, <clears throat> and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. This act of grace meaning giving to the local church as 
found in the context of 2 Corinthians 8. But what does it mean to excel in giving? Uh, If you grew up in the church, you were probably taught that God commands you to give 10% of your income. And that's what you should do. Uh, The idea of 10% or the tithe uh, first appears in Genesis 14 when Abraham tithes what he has to Melchizedek. But we don't see this command of 10%, in my view, carrying over to the New Testament. God still commands us to give to the church, but look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, because we're in the same section where Paul's talking about giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Speaking of giving to your local church, here's what Paul says. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. So each person decides in their heart. See, if God gives us a rote percentage of what he is commanding us to give to the church, how would you excel in that act of grace? I mean, it's black or white. You either give 10% or you don't. But Paul says here that each person should decide in their heart what they ought to give. So our question becomes, how do we decide the amount we should give to the church and, and how do we excel at this? And the answer is that we are not called to give a certain percentage. We are called to give sacrificially. Jesus gives us an example of this in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. Says this, sitting across from the temple treasury, Jesus watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he, he said to them, look, look at this, look at this woman. Surely, I, I, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than anybody else. For they gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty. She's put everything she had in, all she had to live on. This widow didn't give 10%. It it seems she gave 100. And there were others putting in much larger sums of money in the treasury, but that money came out of an abundant surplus. It, It was extra, you know? It's the money that came, you know, after they met all of their obligations and paid for whatever pleasures they wanted, everything You know, and then at the end of the month, what do I have left over? And then they kind of gave out of that. But the widow's gift, the widow's gift showed what her heart truly treasured. See, to God, the quantity of the gift does not matter. He could care less. The amount, how many zeros are after it. It's not the quantity to God. It is the quality of the gift. What does the gift say about your heart? And this is what Paul says of the Philippians gift to him. If you look at Philippians chapter four, verse 18 again with me. Look at what Paul says. He says, but I have received everything in full and I have an abundance. I'm fully supplied having received from Epaphroditus what you provided Look at this, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. 
So this language of their gift being a fragrant aroma to God comes right out of the Old Testament where God would say that the sacrifices and worship of his people were a pleasing aroma to him. So what God cares about in our offerings to him are what our offerings say about our hearts. Is our giving out of duty and obligation or is it out of worship? See, the widow's gift and the Philippians' gift showed that they trusted God to supply their needs. And the widow's gift and the Philippians' gift showed that they treasured God above anything that money could buy them. So here's how you can find out if you are excelling in sacrificial giving. Ask yourself this question. Does my giving make me trust God? And does my giving show I treasure God? By saying that the Philippians gift, this is Paul, when he said that the Philippians gift was a fragrant aroma to God, what Paul's doing is he's relating these offerings of the Philippian church to the uh, Old Testament animal sacrifices uh, back in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, God required that people sacrifice to him the best of their animals. God wanted the animals that were unblemished, without defect, no sickness, no illness, no skin disease, nothing. He wanted the healthiest, the strongest, the best looking, and God required the firstborn to be sacrificed to him. Now put yourself in the shoes of a farmer who farms these animals, raises them up. I mean, if there's an animal that you're gonna take to the temple to sacrifice, you're not gonna pick the best of the flock or the herd. You're gonna pick the worst. You're gonna pick the one that you don't wanna breed. The one that's got defects, right? I mean, you would wanna keep the one that's strongest and healthiest so you can improve the genetics of your flock or your herd over time. That would be the smart thing to do to preserve the health of your animals and the future of your well-being. But God said, I want the best one the one that you're going to put all of your security in to make sure that your herd or your flock continues to be healthy, that's the one I want. Bring it to the temple. The strongest. And I want the first one. And when one of God's people brought the best of their herd or their flock and the first and they cheerfully offered it to God, treasuring God in their heart and trusting that God's gonna provide for them no matter what, Now that's a pleasing aroma to God. A person does not worship this false God of money or security. They are worshiping the one true God. Does God get the best and the first of what we have or does he get the leftovers? Is God the one who is cut out of the budget and and sacrificed when things get tight or overspent? Or is it something else? Is God the first check we write every month or is it the last one if funds are still there? God calls us to give to our local church sacrificially. Does my giving make me trust God? Does my giving show I treasure God? And as you decide on what to give in your heart, these are the questions that we need to be asking and praying about in making that decision, and then asking, am I excelling in this as God has called me to? 
These are the two ways that we put money in the right place in our lives. We need to know that God does not want generosity from us. He wants it for us because generosity leads to joy. And we need to excel in sacrificial giving. What are we sacrificing so that we can give generously to God? You do these things and money will be put in its right place in your life. And I believe that God calls us to be faithful, to generously give to our local church. And so if you consider Grace Hill Church to be your home church, this is your church, then I believe that means God is calling you to primarily give generously here. And here's the thing, I don't feel awkward saying that from the pulpit. And there's a few reasons for that. First is this, so many of you are doing this generously giving to this work, this new church plant here in Herndon, Virginia. You have helped fast track us towards getting to 100% financial self-sufficiency as a church plant. And I'm just so grateful for your investment in this church. So I don't feel awkward preaching on this because I feel like I'm preaching to our strength as a church. Second, I believe that we have faithfully put in systems and structures of accountability and transparency here to ensure that money given to Grace Hill is invested in a godly way in God's kingdom. We're a congregational church, which means I don't have any authority and our elders don't have authority to spend money without congregational approval. So it's, their, it's the congregation's decision. I personally have no access to our money. I don't see bank statements. I don't see any giving records. The only giving that I know of in this church is my own. Other things is my salary does not increase if giving increases. It doesn't work that way. But there are things in our budget that are directly connected to our giving number. So if our giving number goes up month to month, then there are things in our budget that will go up. Let me list them for you. One is our local outreach budget. It's connected to the giving, it's a percentage. So if that goes up, money we have for local outreach goes up. Global mission goes up. Benevolence fund to take care of people's needs, that goes up. Our church planting fund goes up. We as a church are a product of people generously giving to their churches and those churches investing in us. I could name a ton of churches who have given us money to help get us started as a new church plant, this new work here in Herndon. We got our start through generosity of other churches and we wanna do the same for others, other work around the world. Uh, right now, Grace Hill Money is being invested in funding a seminary in the Dominican Republic. Noah was here last week, who runs that, preaching for us. It's also being invested in helping to do a new church plant in Iceland, a very unreached country, in January, we're gonna have that church planter here to share with us about what they're doing. It's being invested right now in mission work in Bulgaria. We just sent a team over to preview everything that they're doing over there. And on top of all of this, all of the stuff that we wanna invest our funds into, I pray that God would entrust Grace Hill to the kind of resources that would allow us to build an effective ministry here in Herndon that's gonna last for the next 100 years. Yes, we live in a very affluent and yes, a very expensive area. And for some of you, I know money is tight. But remember, God is not concerned with the quantity of your gift, it is the quality. That widow put more money in the treasury than anybody else that day. Just think about that. 
It's not about how much it is. For others of you, I know God has entrusted you with abundance. And listen, that is not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with having a lot of money or making a lot of money. But 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 11 says this, that you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God has entrusted you with these resources for you to joyfully invest in his work, in his kingdom. We have a generous God who is calling all of us toward a life of generosity, of putting money in its place. The world says money will buy you the good life, but it's a lie. First Timothy 6 tells us it's actually a trap. What would it look like? Think about this for a second. What would it look like? What could we accomplish for God's kingdom? What could the whole church accomplish for God's kingdom if all of God's people across the world didn't give in to that trap and discovered the good life through radical generosity? Let me pray for us. Father, this morning I pray that in each one of our hearts individually, Lord, you would just help us to examine ourselves and just to really ask, do I worship the God of money? Or or do I try to worship both you, God, and the God of money at the same time? Lord, I know that as I was preparing this sermon this week, Father, I just felt conviction every single day because Lord, I, my, in my flesh, in my mind, in my heart, I want to believe this lie that money can buy me the good life. And Lord, I know it's a lie. Father, I pray that all of us would trust you to provide for all of our needs and that every one of us would treasure you above anything money could ever buy. This is not about increasing how much money the church has. It's not about any of that, Lord. This is about what is the object of the worship of our hearts. We love you, Lord, and we just pray as we end this time singing to you that it would be, this worship would be a fragrant aroma to you. We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.